Good morning. If you have your Bibles, you want to turn to 1 Corinthians 6, 12 to 20. 1 Corinthians 6, 12 to 20. Let's ask God to guide our time. Father God, we ask that you would take your word that we know and believe to be true, and that we would hear it, as James says, not just hearing it, but doing it as well, not just acquiescing mentally, but also with our lives. We ask, Father, that what I say would be wise and accurate and true. We want to be changed by your word, not by man's opinion. And so guide our time, we ask. It's in the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. In the Atlanta, Georgia area, there's a magazine that is really for 20-somethings and 30-somethings that are single. And a little while back in that magazine, the following ad was written. I haven't altered it at all. A young single black female seeks male companionship. Ethnicity is unimportant, but I would prefer a Christ-following male. I'm a very good girl who loves to play. I love long walks in the woods, riding in your pickup truck, hunting, camping, fishing trips. I love cozy winter nights lying by the candlelight, the fire. Candlelight dinners will have me eating out of your hand. And afterwards, I love snuggling with you. I'll be at the front door when you get home from work, and I'll be only wearing what nature gave me. Ask for ginger. I'll be waiting. And you're probably thinking to yourself, did he just read that in church? Ah, there is ginger. What on earth were you all thinking? She loves fires and trucks and candlelights, and she'll meet you at the door with what nature gave her. Remember, she wanted a Christ-following male, right? 15,000 males in Georgia answered that ad and found themselves talking to the Atlanta Humane Society. <laughs> 15,000. Now, I suspect that if it had been in Wausau, it would have still been 15,000 because none of us would answer that ad. But clearly what happened is that people thought they could get away with something, they could do something without any evidence of what they had done. It reminds me of 2015 when you and I saw something very similar in Ashley Madison. You remember that, right? That's when a group stole 300 gigabytes of information, published in three drops, the first 9.7 gigabytes. They published 30 million names of individuals who had paid to an organization whose tagline is this, life is short, have an affair, and who advertises with the following statement, Every day, several thousand cheating wives and husbands 
join Ashley Madison in order to find a discreet affair. 30 million names were released. That was only four years ago. Today, there are 50 million people still using their services. Is that freedom? Is that freedom? We've gone through the sexual revolution and sexual freedom. Is that freedom or is that bondage? To fear that one's name would be released on the dark web, is that really freedom? To have people looking up names in our community, is that freedom? I would argue it is bondage of some of the most humiliating kinds. I want to pick up in our text, I want to read from 1 Corinthians 6, verses 12 to 20. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I would not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and stomach for the food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Glorify God with your body. As you and I begin, we probably need to remind ourselves of first century Corinth in the middle century of it. In the middle half of first century Corinth, we have a harbor city with a lot of sailors and many of the superstitions and many of the activities that go along with sailors in the first century were a part of this city. And so we read phrases like to Corinthianize. Throughout the Roman Empire, it means to commit immorality. A Corinthian girl throughout the Roman Empire means a prostitute. That was the reputation of this city. We have uncovered temples to no less than 26 different false deities. Many of them are fertility cults. A fertility cult is when you go to the cult and you're asking the false god or goddess to bring fertility upon the land or upon the sea. And in order to entice the false god or goddess to bring fertility on the land or the sea, one would engage in fertile acts with prostitute priestesses. This was a regular part of society. Men got married for 
reputable children, legitimate children, for business arrangements to elevate one's social status. But many men were raised with the idea of going to brothels, of having a paramour on the side, of engaging in extracurricular activities. That was a regular part of one's life. There was the objectification of women. Not much has changed in the 21st century, has it? We still objectify women. We still engage in all sorts of immorality. We live in a day and age where the age in which children are becoming sexually active keeps getting lower and lower, and society's answer isn't abstinence, is it? It's protection. We live in a day and age where we have so decided that the ideal person looks in a certain way that individuals starve themselves or some actually end up throwing up and becoming addicted to throwing up in order to look a certain way. And how painful. And we have all sorts of elective surgeries, some of which are not at all safe, in order to become a certain way because we objectify individuals. We're a society that calls immorality morality, and morality we call immoral. Oh, how we desperately need to return to what the Lord says. The text is patently 21st century. Now as we begin, Paul offers three quotes, two that are identical, and then a third one, and all of them are Platonic quotes. They're quotes from the life of Plato. All things are lawful for me, he says twice, and then in verse 13, food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food. You see, he's writing to an individual or a series of individuals who have bought into Platonic thought. Corinth is only 65 miles from Athens. Athens is the home of Plato, who was born in 429 B.C. So Platonic thought has been around for about 500 years. And Platonic thought sees humanity as dualistic. That is two parts rather than three. I also agree with that, but I am far from Platonic thought. You see, Platonic thought believes that the soul is eternal and the body is temporal. The soul matters and the body doesn't. So what you do with the body is totally irrelevant. And out of Platonic thought comes the idea that you can do whatever you want in terms of morality or immorality because your body is irrelevant. It doesn't last. It's only for now, not for later. But what does Scripture say? Scripture says at the moment of death, our soul spirit goes in the presence of God. Our body stays here. But at the trumpet sound of Christ, at the rapture, the parousia, the blessed hope, 
the dead in Christ, our bodies will be raised. And 1 Corinthians 15 says, what is mortal will become immortal. What is perishable will become imperishable. So our bodies matter. They have an eternity ahead of them. So what we do with our bodies matters to the Lord. And that's why Paul writes in verse 13 that the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And for the Lord is the body. Shockingly, verse 19 tells us that our bodies so matter to God that at the moment in which you and I come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit indwells us. So if you have prayed and received Christ, the Holy Spirit is already in you, dwelling in you. First, or Ephesians 1 tells us that that Holy Spirit is a down payment that guarantees our future inheritance. He never leaves, he never departs. And so we can read that God is always with us. And that has a bearing on the text. Because it means that if we know Jesus Christ... And the Holy Spirit dwells within us. And we are engaged in immorality. We are dragging God's Spirit with us to those immoral acts. That's why Paul writes in verse 15, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. When a person joins with a prostitute, he becomes one with her. Think of the biblical language of marriage. A man shall leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. The man and the woman were both naked and not ashamed. And the idea of one flesh in most of Scripture is that after you say, I do, that there is intimacy between a husband and wife, and there is a oneness that is created through that intimacy that God ordains. And then when someone steps outside of the marriage, the oneness that is given is shattered and a new oneness is created between the husband and wife or husband or wife and the new paramour. This is why we read in Matthew 19.9, that the Lord gives the concession of divorce. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, commits adultery. Why is it not adultery when someone steps out the marriage? Because the oneness is now shattered and a new oneness is created, allowing the innocent spouse the permission to walk away. God says that when he joins a husband and wife together, he's done it. Mark 9, 10 says, What I have joined together, let not man separate. But what causes separation? When one or the other steps outside the marriage and joins to another. So I've talked just a little bit about marriage. I want to switch gears. And I want to talk about those who are living together and not married. The Bible says that that's sin and wrong. Now, I've talked to a lot of couples, and and sometimes they'll say to me, Jeff, we love one another. It's just a piece of paper. We're committed. And I want to talk about that piece of paper for a moment. 
Because I think that's rather cliche-ish, and I think it's a cop-out. And I think we actually think paper's rather important, not unimportant, in our society. Let's suppose for a moment you work for me. And you're a really skilled individual, and so I've offered you a very high salary. We're not a digitized company, so I'm going to pay you by check on the 5th and the 20th. And the 21st comes, and I haven't paid you, and you confront me. And say, where's my check? And I say, oh, it's just paper. <laughs> it's just paper. It's not that important. And I wonder what you think. Or let's suppose you're sick. I mean, really sick. Open-heart surgery. And the surgeon walks in, and you have a few minutes to talk to the surgeon, and you say, where did you get your diploma? Where did you go to med school? And the surgeon said, oh, I didn't bother with that. I've done this before, though. I don't have a piece of paper. It's just a piece of paper. And, and what do you think? Are you very excited about that kind of surgery? Or let's suppose for a moment that you went to college. You spent four years getting a bachelor's degree. You spent tens and tens of thousands of dollars. And then your name was called and you, you walked across and the president shook your hand and gave you a little binder and, and you're curious. On the way out, you open it up and there's nothing inside. So you look back and the president says, hey, it's just paper. No big deal. How are you going to feel? See, paper sometimes matters. One more illustration. Let's suppose you bought a new car. You have a new car up there? Oh, no, no, not that one. No. <laughs> Give me some American money. Yeah. You bought a new car. And it's got a lot of horses, and you want to find out just how fast this puppy goes. So you go out in rural Wisconsin, and you open it up, and you get up to, like, three digits. I mean, you are humming along, and as you drive, all of a sudden you notice in your rearview mirror, some lights, and you hear some sirens flash. Does this policewoman have nothing better to do? I mean, really, come on. And she pulls you over, and she gets out of her car, and she walks up, and you roll down your window, and she, she says to you, can I have your license and registration? And you laugh at her and say, those are just paper. Come on. And she's not amused. So she goes back to her car, and she writes you a piece of paper a really nice big piece of paper, and she hands it to you, and you fold it, and you rip it up, and you hand it back and say, I don't want that. It's just paper. How's that going to go for you? Now, when that happens, I don't want you to mention this church or this sermon. <laughs> if you get asked, you're in a converged church, not a free church, and my name is Pastor Sam Deloy. <laughs> paper matters. Paper validates credentials, commits, accomplishments, it promises, it's a vow. We live in a society in which paper actually does matter. So to say we love one another, paper doesn't matter, that's a cliche and it's not true. In fact, statistics for those who live together are abysmal. 
for longevity. That's not a pastor. Look it up statistically in secular studies. They're abysmal. It does not create a commitment for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, forsaking all others, keeping you only to yourself, myself, so long as we both shall live. Get the paper and make the commitment. Paper matters. Back to the text. Paul says, flee sexual immorality. To flee means to run away, not to get close like I do. Don't stick your toes over the edge. <laughs> flee means get far, far away from the edge. I want to illustrate this with something that's not original with me. The words are, the situation is for my life, but I read it somewhere and I thought, oh yeah, that's true for me as well. I've seen this. So let's suppose for a moment a guy comes to my office and he plops down. And if you've been in my office, you know that I have a table with two chairs on one side and two chairs on the other. And I always sit across from you and, and almost always I say, hey, let's invite God's spirit to guide our time, our talk. And so I pray. And so let's suppose I pray and when I say amen, I look over and Based on his posture, it's clear he did not worship. He did not pray. He's really angry. And I say, hey, why are you here? He says, I'm angry with God. I said, really? What did God do? Well, it's not what God did. It's what God didn't do. Oh. What didn't God do? Well, God doesn't keep me from looking at pornography. He doesn't do it. I, I ask him, but he does nothing. Can I ask you a few questions? Whatever. Do you have accountability with someone who asks you really hard questions? I mean, really hard questions. Do you have that in your life? No. Are you fasting and praying and asking God to empower you to turn from pornography? No. You know it's an addiction, a sinful one. Are you seeing a professional counselor to overcome the addiction? No. Have you memorized scriptures that are pertinent to morality to remind yourself at the moments of temptation and to say over and over again? No. Do you have covenant eyes on your electronic devices? No. Have you stopped going to the places where you can access pornography alone? Are you avoiding those places? No. And all the while, this is what I stole from somebody, you push a book across the table. And right when the book is on the edge, you stop and say, hey, can I pray? Lord, keep this book from falling on the ground. In the name of Jesus, amen. And you push the book, and it drops to the ground. And you say, I am mad at God. 
because he didn't keep that book from dropping to the ground. All right, it's silly, but it's obvious, isn't it? It's a cop-out just to say, God, rescue me and to do nothing in our lives to safeguard our lives against whatever the temptation, whatever the sin, and it's different for all of us, that is besetting in our lives. It's a cop-out just to blame it on the Lord and do nothing and not to take the steps that we need to take in order to have victory empowered by God's Spirit. I'm not interested in minimizing the single largest behavioral addiction in the world. And that is pornography. But if one wants to overcome it, one needs to take serious steps. It's a largely unregulated industry. Forbes isn't sure. It's between a $10 and $100 billion industry in our country. That's how unregulated it is. Largest hub is Pornhub that tells us every single minute 200,000 videos are accessed and 58,000 additional sites are accessed every single minute. Last year, one site, Pornhub, uploaded 5 million new videos by professionals, amateurs, and the like. They were accessed over 30 billion times. That means that one large site was accessed four times for every single man, woman, and child on the earth in one year. And probably some of the individuals didn't access. They didn't carry their floor. We know that, right? To this, God says, flee sexual immorality. Now, there's a lot in this text I could talk about, but I want to make three concluding points. The first is very long. The second two are very short. The first point is I want to talk about the book of Hosea. You know Hosea, right? It's a book of hope. Hosea is a book of incredible hope. Hosea is a prophet, and he's married to a woman named Gomer, and Gomer is a mess. God says don't, and she disobeys. God says do, and she disobeys. Gomer is always going after other men, married and unmarried. Gomer makes many, many wrong choices. In fact, if you read the book of Hosea, you want to scream out, No, Hosea! Let her go! Divorce her! Be done with the woman! Enough, Hosea, but God says, go after Gomer. And Hosea does. Nobody ever deserves to be trafficked. Traffic is vile. The trafficking industry is evil. Nobody ever should be trafficked, ever, ever. But one could put oneself at higher risk to end up being trafficked. That's not true for most that are trafficked. It's, it's true for Gomer. She put herself in inconceivable situations and she ended up on a slave block. 
And the picture is really ugly. Her clothes are taken from her, leering eyes are looking at her. You can imagine what the auctioneer is saying. Who will give me five shekels for her? And someone says, five. And there's a voice in the back that says, six. Who will give me ten shekels for her? And someone says, ten. And, and there's a voice in the back that says, eleven. Who will give me 15 shekels? And someone says 15. And that same voice in the back says 16. And she knows that voice. It's Hosea. Now, I don't know what's going on in her mind. I can't even imagine. Maybe she's thinking, he's just going to get me. This is revenge. He's going to buy me and beat me. For all that I've done. Maybe that's what's thinking going on in her mind. I don't know. But he wins the auction. And he approaches her with the blanket and he puts it around her. And he gives her a hug and says, honey, it's time to go home. And he walks her out of bondage into freedom. And if you know the book of Hosea... You, I, we are Gomer. And God is Hosea. And we're the ones that continually get ourselves in bondage. Maybe sexual, maybe not. Doesn't really matter. We all have our own besetting sins and we, we constantly get ourselves in bondage. And Satan is bidding it up and there's a voice in the back bidding for us. Always one more ready to cover our shame, put a blanket around us and say, Jeff, it's, it's time to go home. And that's what 1 Corinthians 6 is about. It's time to go home. Flee sexual immorality. It's time to go home. So maybe for some, the bondage is porn. It's time to come out of the darkness and into the light. You say, if I do that, I'll lose my family. Maybe. I don't know. But I know that light is better than darkness. I know that. And it's time to come out of the darkness and into the light. It's time to get an accountability partner. It's time to get some counseling. It's time to get rid of the electronic Gadgets that are getting us in trouble or at the very least put covenant eyes on them. It's time to memorize some scripture, to sight. It's time to stop going to areas where we fall into darkness. It's time to fast and pray. It's, it's, it's time to flee sexual immorality. It's time for hope. It's time to go home. somebody else, it might be that you're engaged in an adulterous affair. And it's time to come out of darkness and into light. And you say, whoa, if I do that, my, my marriage is over. I don't know. Maybe it is. But I know lightness is better than darkness. Lightness. I made up a word. Light is better than darkness. It always is. And it's time to come out of darkness and it's time to go home with Jesus. And maybe for others, uh, you're living together, or you're not, but 
you're not doing what is moral and right. And it's time to agree with God, confess, and repent, turn from sin. And it's time to come out of darkness and into light. Hosea is in the back. He's bidding for us. That Hosea is God. He's willing to buy, buy us out of bondage and towards freedom. And he's willing to take us home. It's time to come out of darkness and into light. Paul says, Free, flee sexual immorality. The second thing I want to note from the text is that the church ought to be for intimacy, not against. God is for intimacy. He's not against. The first being to have a sexual thought was God, and he created it as good and right within a husband-wife relationship. It's when we take his good gift and we pervert it that it becomes a problem. But God is very much for intimacy. Hebrews chapter 13, 4 says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. God celebrates intimacy. He really does. And so should the church. And we should be teaching this to the next generation and the generation after that. God is not a celestial prude. He's the creator of intimacy in a bounds of a husband-wife relationship. And the final thing that I want to draw out of the text is from verse 18. Allow me to read it again. It says this. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. It's very important that we hear what the text says and what it does not say. The text does not say that sexual sins are the worst sins that we can commit. Now let me just unpack that for a moment. Somebody I trust, nobody at Highland, might come back and say, all sin is the same. Uh, if you read your Bible, you know that's not, it's not even remotely true. It's not even remotely true. All sin is an affront to God. That is true. But all sin being the same, it is not. Certain sins in both the Old and the New Testament receive harsher judgments than others. In fact, if you lead a little one astray, it'd be better that you put a millstone around your neck and throw yourself into the sea than face God for that, right? All sins are not the same. And sexual sin is not the worst sin. Trafficking would be much worse. Murder would be much worse. In fact, there's a number of lists in Leviticus that would clarify what are the worst sins and what are not. So that's the first thing. Sexual sin is not the worst sin, but it is the most unique sin. Nowhere else in Scripture does it say that every other sin one commits is outside the body, but he who commits sexual sin, sins against himself. That is utterly unique. And I can tell you it's true because as somebody who counsels quite a bit, there's only two sins in which people come to my office. A decade, two decades, four decades later. 
sexual immorality, and abortion. There's something about them, and they're related. There's something about those two sins that people have more difficulty getting beyond. And when someone comes to my office, they're almost always broken. They've probably been broken for three decades, and they're walking around with incredible pain. And I have the privilege of helping to set the captive free, not through me, but through the words of God. Psalm 103, 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed my sins, my confessed sins from me. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin, cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Isaiah 1, 18, though my sin be as scarlet, it be made white as snow, though it be as crimson, I'm washed. And one of the things that has to happen in our lives is not only asking God to forgive, but then trusting that he has forgiven. As far as the east is from the west, though it be scarlet, it be made white as snow. It's the character and reputation of God that's on the line. If he says he has done that, He has done that. That doesn't mean there might not be scars or repercussions. There can be. But he's forgiven. He's cleansed. He's in the back. And every time Satan bids, he bids up one more. And then he covers us with a blanket. He puts his arm around us. He tells us he loves us. And he says, let's go home. Let's go home. It's time to come out of darkness and into light. Flee sexual immorality. Let's go home. Let's pray. Father God, uh, you have a lot to say to us in 1 Corinthians. It just seems like week after week, It's a hard topic, a hard subject. The Lord, you know us well and you know our utter need for these topics. And so, Lord, uh, allow us, whatever besetting sin and whatever category is true from us, help us to come out of darkness and into the light. Help us to embrace the forgiveness Help us to flee our sin, empowered by your Spirit, and help us to come home. We thank you that you would do this for us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.